If you uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading at verse 14. There is futility, or vapor, which is done on the earth. That is, there a righteous man to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked... On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is vapor. So I commend pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun." When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover." For I've taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice." As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living... There is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness." And drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vaporous, your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we we come to you tonight and how we thank you for the Lord's Day. The day in which Jesus Christ left the dead and Satan's kingdom fell. Father, how we thank you for not only a risen, living Christ, but a reigning Christ, one who is seated at your right hand and is making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And Father, we thank you that this day represents, Lord, the the day of the new creation. It is a day that not only looks back on the accomplishment of our redemption, but it looks forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness will dwell forever. And so, Father, we thank you for the weekly reminder of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the inauguration of his eternal reign. And so, Father, we pray tonight that as we come to your word that you would help us. Father, we pray that you would help overcome the weariness of our bodies and our minds. We pray that you would help us to to hear your word, to diligently hear it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear tonight. 
We realize, Father, that whether it is the preaching of the word or the hearing of the word, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we look to you, our God. We look to you, the eternal true. We look to you and ask that you would feed us your word and sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. So tonight I want to talk to you about how to put death to shame. So the Bible is abundantly clear that God created this world and God made it good. And to be sure that good creation that God made, sin has, has stained it. Sin has obscured God's glory in it. Sin has spoiled the good gifts that God has given to us. And, and to be sure, the devil himself has, has certainly twisted uh, things in this life and the things of earth so that we now worship the things that we were simply meant to enjoy and we end up destroying them in the process. Now, the church uh, throughout its history has often responded to this fallen world in which we live with sort of um, a disdain for the things of earth. In fact, Isaac Watts, great hymn writer, of course, wrote a hymn called, How Vain Are All the Things Here Below, and he writes these words, How vain are all things here below, how false and yet how fair Each pleasure has its poison too, and every sweet a snare. It's a fairly pessimistic view of the things of earth and life here below. And so I take what Watts says, and then I think of what Solomon says, and he says, so I commended pleasure. So, I mean, in a sense, what is it? Is everything here below, uh, every pleasure, every sweet thing simply poison and a snare, or is there joy and pleasure to be found? In fact, is it even required? Well, I would suggest to you that the Bible, the message of the Bible is that when we enjoy God's good gifts, that glorifies God. Now, we have to be careful because it's easy to go beyond enjoying to worshiping. And when we worship the things of earth, instead of worshiping God, we destroy the gift. But when we actually enjoy the gift, it actually is an act of worship to God. David Gibson, in his wonderful book on Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backwards, says, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. He's given it to you. Now, the section that we're going to look at tonight in Ecclesiastes uh, is, in, in, in a sense, you could argue it's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. It gives us perspective on life, perspective on God, and joy, and it teaches us something that I think is, is utterly profound. When you go through this section, you get to ver- verses 7 to 10, and I'm going to suggest that what Solomon is doing is Solomon is teaching us how to live before we die. But I think it's even more profound than that. Not just how to live before you die, but how to put death to shame before you die. Death often robs us, and in a a sense, I think the prescription that Solomon gives us teaches us how to rob death. Now, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9, are there's a lot of uh, enigmas in this passage, and so I'm just going to deal with this briefly. There probably will be things that, that you have more questions about than, than I'm going to answer, but let me just sort of sketch out verses 1 to 6, because it lays for us the foundation of 7 through 10. So, first of all, in, in chapter 9, in verse 1, Solomon tells us that everything is in the hand of God. Now, we saw that this morning with 7, 14, 7, 13, and 14. 
Solomon has continually affirmed God's sovereignty in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's also affirmed that things don't always work out the way that we expect them to. Um, And in fact, this is true when it comes to the righteous and the wicked. There is a sense in which, for instance, you can read a number of Proverbs, and you read and you would think that the, for the righteous, things will turn out well, and for the wicked, things will turn out poorly. That's the way things ought to be. But we live in a world in which things are not often the way they ought to be. And so sometimes the righteous end up seemingly suffer the fate of the wicked, and the wicked somehow seem to reap the benefits of the righteous. It is this topsy-turvy world that we live in, and Solomon is, is going to tell us, so you don't know whether it is going to be love or hate. Anything awaits man. And so in a sense, the righteous and the wise have no guarantees that their deeds are going to produce a smiling providence. Yes, their deeds are in the sovereign hand of God, but at the end of the day, the sovereignty of God is unpredictable. It's unpredictable by us who are finite, and thus the love or hatred. So one commentator says, we assume that these two terms, love or hatred, refer to either a bright or gloomy future. Love, speaking of God's graciousness, and hate representing a future that is to be feared. But here's the key of verse 1. Anything awaits us. So who are the friends of God? Well, you can't tell simply by who's externally or materially blessed and who is not. Who's loved by God? You can't tell by the way in which God treats somebody. I mean, did not Job, if you were to judge Job by the way God treated him, would you not have concluded maybe God hates him, right? So in our part of the country, Mark Twain's a big deal. He spent some time in Carson City, Nevada, And of course, for those of you that are unfamiliar with Mark Twain, he's one of the finest Reformed theologians ever to come from Carson City. And uh, Mark Twain one time said God would have more friends if he treated the ones that he had a little better. Solomon says you can't tell God's disposition towards a person by the circumstances of their life. Solomon has already told us that prosperity is not always a blessing and adversity is not always evil. And therefore, verse 1 sort of stands as a a banner for us that simply tells us, listen, there is no formula by which you can interpret life and understand God's disposition towards you. Now, to make matters worse, you don't know whether it's love or hate. Anything awaits us, right? And then he gets, in verse 2, to the thing that we know awaits us, which is death. And so, in, in a sense, death is this indiscriminate killer. It's the same for everybody, Solomon says. In other words, whether you're righteous, whether you're wicked, everybody's going to die, no matter how you live. One commentator says it like this. He says, you expect good people to get a fair deal from the grim reaper. And then you have to swallow a really bitter pill because this is not the way the world is at all. In fact, that same event which in, which in Ecclesiastes is the, is the thing that makes the, a life as a vapor so painful, and that is death. Death happens to the good, it happens to the bad. It happens to the religious, it happens to the irreligious. It happens to him who makes oaths, it happens to him that are faithful to their vows, it happens to those who absolutely shun that way of living. And so, I think, Solomon would have laughed when he, uh, if he could have seen an article out of New Orleans about 15 years ago, I, I like saving things for the sake of future sermons, and I read an article, and it literally said, vitamin E increases the risk of dying. <laughs> According to new findings, 
And I thought, increase the risk of dying. I think Solomon would laugh and say, you have to understand, breathing increases the risk of dying. The statistics so far hold true. One out of one. One out of one. Now Solomon sees something in this, and he says this is an evil that's under the sun. Why? Because this same event, this event that that brings an end to life as we know it, this side of the grave, happens to everybody. And even knowing that, man still lives a life full of evil. By the way, that is insanity. To know that life is short, to know that we're all going to die, and yet to still commit yourself to pursuing a path of evil is absolutely insanity. And that's why Solomon says back in chapter 3, man is barely above the beasts. Why? Because his, his passions make him spiritually insane, if you will. He doesn't live and operate according to truth, according to logic, according to reality, but he operates on the basis of this. He wants what he wants. And it's that pattern throughout life that ends up coming to a screeching halt when your heart stops beating. And so this event comes to everybody. Trying to live according to God's word like we should doesn't guarantee you one day longer. Now Solomon's going to say that there's there's an advantage to being alive. In verses 4 to 6, and we'll deal with this quickly, Solomon is not inferring that there's no hope in the life to come. All right. You have to understand. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it is a these comments are made, and they're made in a straightforward way from this side of the grave. Okay. So from that perspective, life is to be preferred over death. When I mentioned this morning I'd been diagnosed with a brain tumor and a a really nice lady wrote me a letter and she says, I'm praying that the Lord will give you a smooth home going. And so I wrote her back. I said, please stop praying. (laughs) You know, I mean, hey, if that's the way I'm going to go out, yeah, I hope it's smooth, but you don't have to pray for it, right? I I, kind of like this thing called living, right? So hope in this life is really, it's the hope of being able to continue to enjoy the good gifts of this life before time and opportunity are no more. That's the perspective of this side of the grave. And so Solomon says, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, to appreciate the magnitude of that, you do have to understand that no Israelite in their right mind would have ever domesticated a canine and taught him to fetch their slippers. Dogs were unclean beasts. In fact, dogs represented, in a sense, the Gentile world. And so Solomon says, um, okay, take the dog. Take the dog that's held in contempt. And then the lion, the regal lion, the majestic king of the beast, right? And Solomon says, breathing is so awesome that it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. And the living know that they're going to die. Here's here's the benefit of knowing that you're going to die. You have time to reckon with the reality of death. There's still an opportunity to, in David Gibson's words, live life backwards. By the way, when, when Gibson says live life backwards, what he means is you live life looking at it from the perspective of one of these days I'm gonna die. And once you start to look through that lens at life and look at it as it were backwards from the perspective of breathing your last, that's when you're really prepared to live. And so Solomon says there's still opportunity to live life backwards. Live in the light of knowing that you're going to die. Be prepared to meet God. But live life embracing it as a gift and enjoying it as a gift. You know, there's, a, there, there's, there's different ways to live life. You can live life as if it's an achievement. 
And everything about life is about what you've done and everything about life are about the achievements that you've accomplished, the things that you can, you can say, I did this, I did that. I have a trophy room to prove it all. You live life as if it is some sort of grand achievement on your part. You will spoil the gift right down to its core. You look at life as a gift, an undeserved gift, every day as a gift, every breath as a gift, and you look at life as a gift to be lived in enjoyment to the glory of God, and all of a sudden, life begins to explode in its vitality because it's something that you didn't earn, it's not something that you achieve, it's something that you live as something that you've received from God, and you will in turn one day give an account to Him for it. And so Solomon wants us to understand that when you look at life from this side of the grave and then you look at the grave, in a sense there's no more chances to learn wisdom, no more ability to enjoy the good things of this life. And death, that, that, that terrible intruder and enemy in God's good world, causes the memory of, of loved ones to fade. And verse 6 underscores this vividly. When somebody dies... There's no more opportunity to hug them. No more opportunity to speak joyfully about past memories or or even to make new memories. In a sense, death is an enemy that robs us of the richness of this life. Now, what I'm afraid of is that sometimes as Christians... We take such a a super spiritualized view of life that we minimize the magnitude of death as an enemy. Death robs us. On November 3rd of 2019, my dad called me at 2.30 in the morning. It was a Lord's Day morning. And my dad is... My dad is, is an awesome man. God bless me with a, with a great dad. And I have never, ever seen him cry. And he called me at 2.30 in the morning. And he is sobbing. Your mom just died. Unexpected. My mom was only 71 years old. As we got in the car that at 3 a.m. and drove from, from Carson City, Nevada, over the Sierras to, to Sacramento, my wife and I just sat in, in the car and drove and just we listened to to hymns and to worship songs and didn't say a word to each other and tears just streamed down our faces. We walked into that hospital and I walked up to my dad and he just sobbed and sobbed. And he tried to stop himself, you know, that generation where it's not a manly thing to cry. And he'd try to stop himself. And then it begins to sink in. Not going to be able to talk to her anymore. My mom had dementia. She became more and more childlike. And it was uh, one of those things where we enjoyed visiting her and we knew that she enjoyed it when we came over and those visits were now just done. Death is an enemy. Death comes into this world not because it's a part of life but because it's the consequence of sin. 
In fact, Herman Bovink, the old theologian, writes these words, and these words have impacted me deeply over the years. He says, death breaks the varied and wonderful bonds of life relations in this world. In comparison with life this side of the grave, death results in non-being, the the disturbing negation of the rich and joyful experience of life on earth. And understand this, if life on earth is created by God and it's good and it's a gift to be enjoyed, the disruption of that gift is not a good thing. Yes, to live is Christ and to die is gain, but the Bible does not romanticize death. Solomon does not romanticize death. In fact, Solomon is pained by the fact that what makes this life a breath is that it's over so quickly, and the way that it's over so quickly is by death. So here's the real question in light of these first six verses. The real question is, how in the world shall we live knowing that we're going to die? Young people, this is a question that you need to ask yourself. Young people think they're immortal. They think that, that, you know, they look around and they think of all the old people all around them and say, man, I, at least it's a long, 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 long time before I ever get to be that old. But the fact is, is that young people die, old people die, and everyone in between dies. And here's the reality Whether you only live to be 10 years or you live to be like old Bob Edwards in our church who's pastor for over 60 years, lived to be 102 years old. Whether you're only 10 or whether you're 102, the fact is, is that in the end, it's still a blip on the screen. It's still a vapor. It's still a breath. It is a breath on a cold Nevada morning. You breathe out, you see that breath, and it's gone before a second is over. And that's, that's life. And so, if, if, if that's what this life is, then don't you think you ought to know some of the fundamental keys of living that life to the full? You see, Solomon is not going to let death rob him of God's gift. He's not going to be swindled out of joy knowing that one of these days he's going to breathe his last. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to turn around and he's going to say, I'm going to kick death in the teeth and I'm going to do it by really living while I live. Pull the fangs out of death by living well. Pull the fangs out of death by embracing joy and embracing life as a gift from God and eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, how to live before you die. So, we got to do this quickly, but my goodness, I hope this, I hope this resonates with you. God commands you to enjoy this life in the midst of mist, and there's a fourfold prescription for joy, all right? Now, some of you are going to say, that sounds, what's wrong with you people from Nevada? That sounds so earthy. And I want to say that the Bible advocates a sanctified earthiness. Okay, so, fourfold prescription for joy. Verse 7, enjoy food. Go then, by the way, there's, that's, there's like an inference, one to six, death, awful, terrible. Go then and eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God's already approved your works. And so, food's a gift from God and good tasting food is a good gift from God. We won't talk about food that doesn't taste that good, but we'll talk about food that tastes good. It's a good gift from God. And God takes delight when we enjoy his gifts. And so you want to hear something that is, that is wonderfully sanctified earthiness? Start up your barbecue. And, put, and, and marinate some steaks. And put some steaks on the barbecue. And, and by all means, get a baked potato and sour cream and butter. And, and 
for conscience sake, eat a salad. I don't care. But then eat the steak and the baked potato for the glory of God. Why? Because as food delights the taste buds, you can give thanks. Now, of course, don't overeat, but enjoy the food that God has given. You do understand the food that's in front of you is a gift that you are to eat and to enjoy to the glory of God. The next imperative may cause some of you a little anxiety. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. So wine, by the way, wine in the Bible is not seen from the prohibitionist perspective, but it too is the gift of God. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. And its connection in Scripture with celebration and the blessing of God is unmistakable. And so Solomon's not talking about about abusing God's gifts, but he's talking about using God's gifts for God's glory as we enjoy them. And so he says, eat your food, drink your wine, and do it, and just delight in it. And he says, for God's accepted your works. That statement by itself is a profound statement of liberation. Remember 9-1, our works are in his hands, and if we live by the standard formulas and the fallible interpretations of providence, then we'll never know whether or not we're accepted by God, right? You understand that? If you, if you are waiting for God's favor in response to your works, you are always going to be in a state of uncertainty. But if we live by revelation, knowing that God has already accepted our works, then we're not on this performance track trying to eke out some kind of favor from God, but rather we are on the my works are already accepted track and have the capacity, therefore, to enjoy God and his gifts. You understand that a strong assurance that God has already accepted you is, is empowerment to enjoy his gifts. If you're constantly wondering, am I accepted by God? Am I accepted by God? How well are you going to enjoy the gifts that he's given you in this life? Do I love my kids too much? Am I, am I spending too much time uh, enjoying my wife? Um, I mean, my goodness, what if I'm... Do- and, and Solomon says, God has accepted your works. You are accepted before God. Therefore, just enjoy the life that God has given to you. The next, the next uh, prescription is be a joyful person, verse 8. Now, notice... Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not your head be lacking oil. Now, that needs a little cultural explanation, okay? So, white clothes and oil in your hair is the opposite of sackcloth and ashes, the apparel of grief. White clothes, oil in your hair is celebratory. Okay, so Solomon's not saying, hey, go out and buy really cool clothes and get an expensive haircut. But he is saying, hey, walk around with joy and, and, and a song in your heart, as it were. Don't walk around like the sky's always falling. It might be falling, but don't let it rob you of joy because life is short anyway. So if it falls on you today, at least let it fall on you with a smile on your face. The charge of melancholy, says Charles Bridges, is a libel upon religion. Did you hear that? The charge of melancholy is a libel upon religion. John Newton taught us to sing solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. Now, if you want to put death to shame, you enjoy your food as a gift from God and you're a joyful person. Let me just say something about being a miserable person. If you, if you are a joyless, miserable person, no one's going to miss you when you die. Think about that. If you are a joyless, miserable person who has as your mission in life to spread your misery... 
No one's going to miss you when you die. If you're a person who enjoys God's gifts and you spread that joy, you will be greatly missed. One of the most sad things I've ever read is obituary of a 79-year-old woman from Vallejo, California in 2008, Dolores Aguilar. This was submitted by one of her daughters. This is, this is a real obituary. Dolores Aguilar, 1929, August 7 to uh, August 22, 2008. Dolores Aguilar was born in New Mexico, and she left us on August 7, 2008. She will be met in the afterlife by her husband Raymond, her son Paul Jr., and daughter Ruby. Dolores had no hobbies, made no contribution to society, and rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. I speak for the majority of her family when I say her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores and amongst ourselves we will remember her in our own way which were mostly sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have some fond memories of her and perhaps we'll think of those times too but I truly believe at the end of the day all of us will only miss what we never had a good and a kind mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. I hope she is finally at peace with herself. As for the rest of us left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, and no closure for the family she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in the end to see to it that her grandchildren and great-grandchildren can say their goodbyes. So I say it here for all of us. Goodbye, Mom. Live in such a way that when you die, people will miss you. Number three. Verse nine, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun for this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So Solomon shows that marriage ends up being this vital ingredient in a sense for defying death's pall. Marriage is a gift from God. It's joining together a, a man and a woman and notice the woman whom you love. The romance, the... By the way, you, being uh, reformed doesn't mean that you have to poo-paw romance and act like you've got an arranged marriage. <laughs> the, the romance, the, the intimacy, the companionship of, of marriage are supposed to be among the most exquisite delights in this short blip-on-the-screen life. And when Solomon says all the days of your fleeting life, he's telling us marriage brings a sweetness to this short life. You think of it this way. Marriage is an elixir in our death row cell under the sun. It's a part of our portion and reward in the midst of toil. Since it's God's design, there ought to be a sanctified indulgence in the joys of marriage. I'll try to tell this story as discreetly as possible. I was pouring concrete in the, the house we own before the house we are in now. This is, this is 1998, and I'm pouring concrete, and I pour a slab, and I go out, and I write in that slab... Don't look it up now. You can look it up later. I wrote Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. You might just know, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. You know the passage. Okay, it goes on. Okay, in ways that we talk about it at a wedding, but probably not a Sunday night service in Grand Rapids. And so my wife walked out and she looks and she says, is that the passage I think it is? (laughs) I said, yes. She says, you you can't put that in concrete. And I said, well, I I already did. 
And she says to me, what if we sell the house someday? We're going to have to pull that out and take it with us. I said, nonsense. What if somebody reads the passage? I said, well, then I pray that God will bless Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 to the salvation of their souls and the blessing of their marriage. And so there is this wonderful sense where the Bible tells us that marriage is this, is this blessing and there's a joy and there's an exhilaration. In fact, that very line at the end of verse 19, be exhilarated always with her love, is, is more literally be intoxicated with her love. It's the only place in the Bible where intoxication is, is given the warrant of Holy Scripture. Be intoxicated with your wife's love. Boy, I miss my wife. I need to call her. <laughs> now, let me, just, let me just make some quick application, all right? First, for some, God doesn't give this gift, all right? And in God's providence, they remain single their whole lives. And if that's you, what you need to understand is this. Marriage is not what ultimately completes you. Jesus Christ is what ultimately completes you. And so if if God withholds this marvelous gift from you, seek contentment in him and look to the other gifts which he has given for you to enjoy, okay? And so I just want to say, this is a wonderful gift. It's a marvelous gift. It's one that we extol, but God doesn't give it to everybody. And I don't want you to feel like if you don't have it, that somehow God has cheated you. He hasn't. He has, he has blessings for you in different ways. For those who do enjoy this gift, remember God will, in fact, take it away someday. Painfully so. Painfully so. I was telling somebody after the first service that we have, we have six, within this last year, we have six new widows in our church. And so when that day comes and your spouse goes to be in the presence of the Lord, it will be with sadness and sorrow that you say goodbye. But blessed be the name of the Lord. You will be able to look back on the gift of joy while you had it. And that is no small gift in this life. When Jonathan Edwards died of the smallpox inoculation 30 days after taking the presidency at Princeton, his wife wrote to his daughter Esther and she said these words, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it. Now listen to this line. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives. He has my heart. What a legacy. My husband and your father has left us. We're all given to God and there I am and there I love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. And so for however long you have the gift, forever, however long you have each other, rejoice in the gift while you have it. It doesn't last forever. But there are some of you that have the gift. And you simply don't enjoy it. And to you, I say, um, repent. You say, you don't know what my marriage is like, too much water under the bridge. And what I want to say is, nonsense. God is a God of restoration. And God, in fact, does make up for the years that the locusts have eaten. And someone else may say, well, you know what? I, I open the gift and I don't like the gift. I, I looked at the warranty and it looks like I'm stuck. Repent. 
he or she is the gift that God has given to you. So don't ruin the gift by not liking it, wishing it was different. Don't be the child who on Christmas morning looks at what his parents gave him and then longingly looks at what all the siblings got and wish they had those toys instead of the one that they got. You have a gift from God by his sovereign appointment. Do I know there are marriage problems? I've been a pastor for 29 years. Of course I know there are marriage problems. Do husbands and wives not get along? Of course. Two sinners get married. What could go wrong? But my goodness, grumbling and complaining about the gift that God has given you is the heart of discontentment. And so maybe, maybe God has some real serious work of sanctification to do in your spouse. <laughs> and, and, and you pray. You pray all the time. Lord, please, Sanctify that man. Please, Lord, give him this. Give him that. Take away this. Take away that. Make him into the husband that I want him to be. Oh, my goodness. Would you really pray that? Make him into the husband that I want him to be? How about transform him by your grace and spirit into the husband that you want him to be. And by the way, do the same in me. If, if you can only pray for your spouse to improve and not for yourself, there may be some self-righteousness going on. And so God has serious work to do in all of us, and so we pray, and we pray for each other, and my goodness, if you're not in the habit of praying with each other, start praying with each other. Get into the Word with each other. You go, you don't know how hard it is. You can start. Baby steps. Maybe just a psalm in the morning. But here's here's the reality, is that you're going to be held accountable if you made each other miserable. That's sobering. Husbands, you will be held accountable by God if you made your wives miserable. Wives, the same for you. And so Solomon says, you, you really, you want to live while you live? Enjoy your food. Enjoy the wife that God has given you and be a joyful person. One last thing is number four, verse 10, work hard. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom and shield where you are going. And so Solomon concludes this section with the command to have a positive, robust, hearty approach to life and to work. There's, there's absolutely nothing half-hearted about Solomon's instruction in Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That pertains to your work. It pertains to your marriage. It pertains to your worship. It, re- it pertains to your play earnestness in what God gives you is the way to enjoy the gift that he's granted. And again, the refrain of death comes back, but it doesn't come back at the end of verse 10 to scare us. It comes back to motivate us. Time is short. You don't have forever to work on this stuff. You, don't, you, you can't just say, well, next month I'll start really trying to put some effort out. No, it's today. It's today. And so I conclude by pointing out that a distorted view of worldliness may end up sapping the pleasures out of this life which God has actually required us to enjoy. Think about, I love this hymn, by the way, but just think about the, what, how we sing sometimes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Just remember that in the light of his glory and grace. The second observation is this, is that when we enjoy God's gifts as gifts from him, we enjoy them, we don't worship them. Okay? We enjoy God's gifts and he's glorified. We don't turn them into idols and then glorify the idol. We enjoy them as gifts and glorify him. And so, God's gifts in this life, this is so, so powerful. God's gifts to us in this life are a precursor to the new heavens and the new earth. You're not going to be married in the new heavens and the new earth, but listen carefully. The gifts that God gives us to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth, there is going to be, there is going to be life. It's not going to be floating on clouds, plucking harps, and, and, and chanting. It is going to be a full-orbed human life in the presence of God that is absolutely matchless of anything that we've ever known in this life. And so, we, as we enjoy God's Good gifts now, we do so, in a sense, with the specter of of death peering over our shoulders, but in the new heavens and the new earth, we will experience in a superlative way the gifts of God without the specter of death ever being around ever, ever again, and there won't be life as a vapor to rob it from us. It will be eternal, and those gifts in the new heavens and the new earth will be better and brighter and will be ours if Jesus Christ is ours. And in fact, Jesus Christ is the greatest of all of God's gifts. And so if Jesus Christ, God's greatest gift, is ours by faith, then all the greater, or I should say all the lesser gifts of this life, guess what they do? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely bright in the light of His glory and grace. And so there's coming a time in the life to come where all of His greatest gifts will be enjoyed with no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. And so when on that day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light and we shall ere His people be. All glory be to Christ. We're all going to die. Come to grips with it. Live life backwards in light of the grave, and then you'll really live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care about how we live this life. And we pray that we would be people that are full of gratitude for all of the gifts that you've given, whether it's the food on our tables, whether it is the wife or husband by our side, or the work that you've given us to do. Father, we pray that we would, that we would embrace these as gifts from you, a good Father, and that we would be joyful, cheerful people who look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more tears, no more curse, no more death. The first things will have passed away. Everything will be new. In Christ's name, amen.